Uh, my name is Brian Dillon, and I am the campus minister here, and we are so glad that all of you are here. It's good to have you here, whether it's your first time or your first time in a while or whether you're here every week. We are glad that all of you have chosen to celebrate Easter Sunday with us, or like we, or we like to call it Resurrection Sunday. Today is certainly one of the most popular days for church attendance, and we are glad that you have chosen to worship with us here at Gateway this morning. You know, there's no greater theme in all of the Bible than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Of the many world religions, only one claims that its founder returned from the grave. The resurrection of Jesus is the very cornerstone of Christianity. It's why we do everything that we do. It is the foundation upon which the Christian faith is built, the hinge that all of our hopes swing on. To put it plainly, without the resurrection, none of this matters. Without the resurrection, the birth of Christ doesn't matter. All of the history of Christianity doesn't matter without the resurrection. The Apostle Paul put it this way, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, when the biblical authors refer to someone that has fallen asleep, they mean uh, those that have died. But it does remind me of a story where a preacher and a taxi driver both die and go to heaven. And when they arrive, St. Peter, he comes out to greet him, and he said, guys, I want you to come with me. I want to show you where you're going to be living now. And so the guy, the preacher, the taxi driver, they, they do as they're told, and they follow Peter, and they come upon a mansion. And man, this place is awesome. You look at the outside, it's huge. You're like, all right, this is going to be all right. This is where I'm going to live the rest of my life? All right. And they go inside, and it has everything that you could imagine. It has a bowling alley, Olympic-sized swimming pool, a movie theater. This place is awesome. And Peter, he turns, and he hands the keys to the mansion to the taxi driver. And the taxi driver goes, oh my goodness, thank you so much. This is awesome. Well, now the preacher's feeling pretty good, right? Because he's like, if this guy gets this, can you imagine? Mine's going to be double this size. This is going to be awesome. And so Peter, he, he leads the preacher to the next house, except things start getting a little weird. They start end up in a rough end of town, and they go down an alley over to a rough old shack with a bunk bed, a dresser, a small bathroom, and just a small 13-inch TV set. The preacher goes, whoa, 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 Peter, come on, man. You got, this can't be right. I think you're a little mixed up here. I mean, shouldn't I be the one that gets the mansion? After all, I was a preacher. I I went to church every Sunday. I I studied God's word. I preached God's word to the masses. I mean, I should be getting the mansion, right? Peter says, look, yeah, all of what you said is true. But during your sermons, people slept. When the taxi driver drove, people prayed. And that's why we're, we're where we are today. Now, I'm going to selfishly ask you this morning that you try to stay awake for me just in case that story is true. 
the resurrection. This man, Jesus, made this claim before his death that he would return, but nobody knew what to do with it. Nobody understood what was going on. Even today, people don't believe it. Seriously, a dead man coming back to life? In our sophisticated age, when myth has given way to science, who can take such a claim seriously? Well, we do, as a matter of fact. And you might hear that and think, well, of course you do. You kind of have to think that. It's kind of part of the job, right? But we don't just take it seriously because it's, because it's what everything we do is built upon, like we just kind of said. No, we take it seriously because the evidence actually points to it being true. Lee Strobel was an investigative journalist at the Chicago Tribune, and he was also an avid atheist. That is, until his wife became a Christian and he made it his mission to disprove the claims of Christianity and get these thoughts out of her head. And that is actually when things started to unravel a little bit for Lee Strobel. See, after his investigation, rather than debunking his wife's faith, Strobel actually became a Christian himself and is today one of the leaders in defending the Christian faith. It's quite a story, and maybe you've heard of his most popular book, The Case for Christ. There's a movie by the same title that you might have seen or heard about. And his investigations and his findings, they've actually led to him writing several other Case for books, including one called The Case for Easter. And in this book, Strobel makes four proofs for the resurrection. And, and I, I'd encourage you to read the book sometime. It's a, a thin little book. It wouldn't take you too long at all. Because when you hear me say this, you might be thinking, okay, so he went to some guys and he just found, them to, found people who would say what he wants them to say. So he could write this book, so it would prove his point. He just wanted, he just found some buddies and got support. But what actually happened is he found experts in the field of each of the four proofs, and he approached his conversations with them in a manner where they had to prove to him, they had to give evidence to convince him that what they were saying is true. He approached it like a skeptic would, like one that doesn't believe. And here were his four proofs. First is that Jesus really did die on the cross. Jesus didn't simply pass out from the experience. He didn't swoon on the cross. No, using the information from the accounts of the crucifixion alongside modern medical science, the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus did, in fact, die on the cross. Strobel says there is no record of anyone, anywhere, ever surviving a Roman crucifixion. It was a painful and excruciating death, and they made sure that you were dead. So when you were crucified, there was no escaping that. And no one disagrees that Jesus was indeed crucified. The second proof is the eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Lots of people saw Jesus alive after he died on the cross. The disciples saw him. 500 followers saw him at once. Jesus, he appears to his half-brother James, who made a dramatic transformation from not believing earlier in Jesus' ministry to believing, and then going on to writing a book of the New Testament. Now, the old joke always goes that how much would your brother have to do, have to say to convince you that he was the Son of God, right? If you know him that well, you're like, come on, man, you, you're not, you're putting me on. But he believed. Later, the resurrected Jesus also appeared to the Apostle Paul. And all of these eyewitnesses, they went to their graves. Some of them died in terrible ways, believing in a resurrected Christ. Now, one person might lie. 
Maybe a band of his 12 closest followers. Maybe they would propagate a lie for the cause. But it's not likely that hundreds or even thousands of people would hold to a lie, especially under the threat of certain persecution, imprisonment, or even death. No one dies for a lie. And going back to point one for just a moment, If Jesus had not really died on the cross, can you imagine the pathetic shape he would have been in when he appeared to these people? I mean, nobody was going to give their life for the sake of a message of a man that they themselves had to nurse back to health. Nobody's going to be rushing out to tell people that they saw Jesus if he was in the same condition that they had just seen him on while he was on the cross. They would instead be trying to nurse him back to health. You'd be tending to him. He would come along and he would say, oh my goodness, let me, let me take care of you, Jesus. No, you don't rush away and tell your friends when somebody's hurt. You rush away and tell your friends when he's fully restored. The third proof is the early accounts for the resurrection. The story of Jesus' resurrection was not just a legend which would have taken decades and decades to establish. It was a celebrated fact in the early church. In other words, because of the weight of the many eyewitnesses, the early church leaders developed these statements of belief. They called them creeds, which date all the way back to the middle of the first century, just a few years, if that, from the actual date. And the fourth proof is the empty tomb. You know, it wasn't just Jesus' followers who were claiming that Jesus had risen. The best evidence for the empty tomb is that even Jesus' opponents, even the people that hated him the most, that were trying to get rid of him, they admitted that the tomb was empty. See, when the disciples began to tell everybody that Jesus had risen, the Jewish religious leaders, they're in a panic. And they call the soldiers who were tasked with guarding the tomb, and they say, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. They betrayed themselves with their instruction. And there are many more reasons to believe in Jesus and the truth of the gospel. The truth that he lived a sinless life. The truth that he died a cruel death on the cross. And that he was buried and that he, was, that he subsequently rose from the dead. And one of the big reasons that we believe is that you and I are still here this morning. We're still here today giving him our time and worshiping him over 2,000 years later. Ever since the resurrection, people have been trying to disprove him. Some have made it their life's work to disprove Jesus. And yet, Christianity still stands with more and more evidence being found to prove that Jesus did, in fact, die on the cross for all of our sins and that he did raise on the third day just as he claimed he would to prove that nothing in this world, not even death, has any power over him. And because of that, we have a living hope that promises that one day we will get to spend eternity with him in heaven. And because of that, We know that there is only so much that this world can take away from us. There's only so much that the evil of this world can do to us because we have the security and the salvation from Jesus Christ and nothing can ever take that away. The last few weeks we've been talking about how the life of Jesus impacted the life of the Apostle Peter. Now, I say Peter, you know, you know Peter, you know, he's, he's, the, he's the guy that's always manning the guard station at the pearly gates and every good heaven joke. You've heard of him before. 
But there's so much more to study about his life and how it was transformed by Jesus. There is something special about Peter. There's something that draws us to him, and there's something about Peter that drew Jesus to him as well. And each week we've looked at some of his moments of just incredible greatness, just mountaintop faith experience, but we've also looked at some of his horrible, embarrassing blunders just in the valley. And the thing is that we're drawn to Peter because he has his ups and downs just like all of us. I mean, you never quite know what you're going to get from Peter. You know, one moment he's doing something amazing, like walking on water, and the next moment he's like, what are you, what are you doing? He's so passionate and eager that it seems like you were just as likely to get a moment of great folly as you were great faith. I mean, even at the end, even when Jesus was about to be arrested, he fell asleep when Jesus asked him to stay awake as he went off to pray right before his arrest. And then they come to arrest him and Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off a guy's ear. And Jesus is like, Peter, come on, man. I gotta, you're making this harder on me. Puts the guy's ear back on. You know, he did not, Peter, he denies Jesus three times on the night of the crucifixion. And I'm sure he was at his lowest moment that night as he wept bitterly after realizing what he had just done. I mean, he was one of Jesus' best friends. He was a member of the inner circle of Jesus. He was allowed to hear special truths and witness incredible things that the other disciples weren't privy to. And yet, he denies Jesus in his greatest hour of need. And what made it worse and more humiliating for Peter was that he had just boasted, just mere hours, he had just boasted that he would never deny Jesus. Jesus, I would never deny you, man. I would, I would go to prison before I would deny you. I would die before I would deny you. There's no way that's ever going to happen. But when the pressure was on, he caved and he denied Jesus not once, but three times. And after this, they took Jesus out to be beaten and crucified, hung up on the cross for hours as a spectacle for all to see. Luke writes in his gospel account, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. You know, have you ever read the gospel accounts And notice somebody kind of important that's missing around the cross. We see that the women are there, but there's somebody that's not mentioned that you would think would be. Have you ever wondered where Peter was while Jesus is on the cross? John's gospel tells us that Jesus' mother Mary was there. John himself was there. The other women are there. This is everybody close to Jesus, his best friends, his family. No Peter. So where was Peter? I mean, he was always by Jesus' side, right there to defend him. Where is he at now? I'll tell you where I think he was. I think he was in a dark room somewhere, sobbing his eyes out, too embarrassed to show his face. Couldn't believe what he had just done. I mean, I'm sure he remembered when Jesus said, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. And I wonder... I wonder if in Peter's day he's heard what, that Judas has gone and committed suicide because of what he's done. Maybe, maybe Peter's sitting there, he's contemplating some of the same thoughts. He is at his lowest of low moments. But then Sunday morning came. But then Sunday morning came. 
And Peter's with John, and, and some men come busting through the door. With the, and some women come busting through the door, exclaiming, "The tomb is empty! The stone is rolled away! Uh, we we saw the angels. They spoke to us, and they said he's not here. He is risen. And now the body of the Lord, he, it's gone. Uh, we don't know where they've taken him." And we see what the angels said to the women in Mark chapter sixteen. It said, "Don't do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here." See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Man, Peter must have been in a bad place, but his ears, they, he, they perk up when he hears this. Oh man, could it be? Maybe, just maybe he lives. And he and John, they, run, they take off, they run out of that room, they run to that tomb as fast as they could. And John gets there first, but he doesn't go inside. Peter, oh Peter, he just runs right in. He doesn't know what he's going to find, what he's not going to find, but he doesn't care. He's so excited, he's so eager, blows right in there. What they found was the empty grave clothes. No blood, no sign of the event that had taken place just three days earlier. And while John instantly believed, Peter, man, he went home, his mind is kind of blown. He just goes home wondering about all that had happened. But that very same day, something special happened to Peter, and it's something we don't know very much about, but we do know that it happened. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus made a special and personal appearance to Peter before anybody else. In these verses, Paul is he's going to be repeating a statement of belief, one of these creeds, going back within a few years of the crucifixion. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. As part of a statement of fact, a full belief, Paul says that Jesus appeared to Peter before the rest of the disciples, which means that Peter knew for a fact that Jesus was still alive and that He had a plan for His life And Peter knew for a fact that Jesus wanted him back on his team. You know, a little girl was once asked to describe Easter in one word, and I love the word that she chose. I said, what's what's one word to describe Easter? And she said, surprise! Isn't that a great word to describe Easter? Surprise! Like, surprise Satan! You thought you won! You thought you took him down! Surprise, Satan, he conquered death. Surprise, enemy, is the Jesus. You thought you finally got him. You thought you had stopped him. Surprise, your, your plot has been foiled. Surprise, disciples, Jesus is alive. He's not here anymore. And perhaps a fourth surprise would be the events that would change Peter's life forever in John chapter 21, giving him the restoration on his road to redemption that he so desperately desired from the Lord. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, will you turn over to John chapter 21 with me and follow along? You know, we all need that restoration from Jesus, don't we? Because even though we acknowledge that He is indeed alive and well, we've all blown it from time to time. Yeah, we're convinced that He is risen, that He is living Yet we still find ourselves in need of His grace and forgiveness time and time again. 
So let's read about Peter's restoration in John chapter 21, starting with verse 1. John writes, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John writing about himself. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord! When Simon Peter heard, Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had, was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Peter's a little excited here. The other disciples, they came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not, they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large, large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tim, my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Here we see Peter's restoration to Jesus. And Peter was at his lowest moment. You know what? Jesus still welcomed him back. And that same opportunity is available for each one of us. Because even at our lowest moment, there is nothing in all of this world that could ever separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. We too can be restored. And as we wrap up this morning, I want to look at what happened to Peter and his restoration as Jesus restored him. Because I believe the same thing might happen to us, will happen to us as we are restored. And the first thing is that we will be tempted to go back to our old ways. You know, the devil, when he hears that we want to go back to Jesus, he's not very happy about it. He wants us back, doesn't he? And he'll do everything in his power to get us, to keep us from going back and being restored. You may remember that when Jesus first found and called the disciples back in the earlier part of the Gospels, they were tending to their fishing business. And when he called them to service, he told them, look, I'm going to take you from being fishers, fishermen, I'm going to take you to become fishers of men instead. And indeed, throughout his ministry, through his teaching and training, he, he did just that. And yet, as soon as Jesus was gone, was thought to be gone, 
They went right back to their old ways. And we just read in verse 3 that Peter said, you know, look guys, uh, I, I guess I'm going out fishing. And they all said, okay, we'll go with you. Rather than, than preparing to continue the work of Jesus or praying for what do we do next now that he's gone, they were right back in their old way of life. They went right back to where they were when Jesus found them. Why do we do that? Why in the moment that it seems like we feel like Jesus isn't there, when we can't sense his presence, we feel like he doesn't care, why do we just go right back to where we were? Why do we backslide rather than press forward? Or perhaps it's because we think we've come far enough already. I'm good. I'm good where I'm at. Just leave me alone. Just let me be me. I'm, I'm, I'm good here. Maybe it's because we, we think we're strong enough to resist temptation until, uh-oh, we find out that we're not. Far too often, we overestimate our ability to resist the temptations in our life. Maybe it's because you've, you've come a long way, but now you're afraid to go any further. I, I don't know what's around the next corner, and, uh, and so, you know what, I, I'm good here. We exchange the thrill of the climb for the comfort of camp. Or maybe it's because it's all we know. Maybe we go back because it's all we know. You say, I'm no rock that you can depend on. I, I, I'm not that person. I'm not strong enough for that. I'm merely a, a pebble. You got the wrong guy. When my soul is hungry, I'm going back fishing in the world. That's just who I am. Whatever it is, just know that there will never be a moment where you won't be tempted to go back to who you once were. The call of this world will always play its sweet tune in your ear, trying to bring you back to your old ways. Friends, we can never attain a level of faith that will keep us from being tempted. We will always be tempted, but we must resist the temptation to backslide into our old life. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, Peter, he was tempted to go back, and in fact, he did for a while, but what happened? John tells us in verse 3, they caught nothing. When they went back fishing, they caught nothing. And that's what the world will do to us. It'll call us back and it'll make it seem like it's going to be great and it's going to be a great decision that's going to be so fun and then it's going to offer us nothing when we get there. Second thing that's going to happen is that our love will be tested. After breakfast, Jesus, he looks over at Peter and says, Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than these? And some think that by these, Jesus means the boats, the nets, and the fish, the, the, the fishing equipment that were right there. In other words, do you love me more than the life that you left behind? That's a question that is similar to what Jesus asked many in his ministry. Jesus was always clear that following him, being willing to give up the things that you value above everything else. For one man... It was his possessions, and he couldn't give it up. And for Peter, it was these things. Now, we may say that we want to follow Jesus, but when the going gets tough, will we abandon the mission and return to our old life, or will we press forward into him? You know, it's interesting. When Jesus asks this question, he uses the word agape, which means a deep, unconditional love. When he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? It's this deep, unconditional love that he's looking for. But Peter, in his answer, when he says, yes, I do love you, he uses the word phileo, which means a deep friendship or, or a brotherly love. Now, 
when we're talking about love, if I could give you any free marriage advice for all of you here today, guys, you got to listen to me. If your wife snuggles up to you and says, honey, do you love me? You cannot say, yes, dear, I love you. As a friend, it's not going to get you very far, all right? If, if, that, if I leave you with anything today, that don't, you can't do that. Nevertheless, Jesus says to Peter, feed my lambs. In other words, take care of the young ones. Jesus then asked the same question to him a second time. Peter, do you love me unconditionally? Peter, man, he answers him in the same way. I mean, his response is a little wanting here, right? It's a little weak. It reminds me of the young lady who asked her boyfriend, babe, do you love me enough to die for me? And the boyfriend responds, oh no, honey, my love is an undying love, all right? And just like that young lady there, Peter's, like Jesus doesn't get the response he wants, right? His, his, Peter's response wasn't exactly what Jesus was looking for here. And so Jesus asked Peter a third time, do you love me? Only this time, he used the same word that Peter had been using. And John says that Peter was grieved at this third round of questioning. Now maybe it's because Peter's like, man, I did it again. He wants this commitment from me, and I failed him again. He's asking for an unconditional love, and why do I keep answering? I can't do it. So Jesus comes to his level, and now he's grieved. Maybe it's because of that. Or maybe it reminded him of his three denials. Peter needed this. He needed his love to be tested. He had denied Jesus three times, so he needed this threefold restoration. But not just that. Jesus also gave him his mission three times. He said, Peter, I've got work for you to do. I need you to take care of my sheep when I'm gone. When we take the challenge to go where Jesus wants us to go and to do what Jesus wants us to do, at some point there's going to be a test of your loyalty and your love. In this world, there will be trials of many kinds. So when the going gets tough, will we return to our old life and the things of this world? Will we simply start comparing ourselves to those around us? Man, I I go to church more than he does. I read my Bible more than she does. I'm a better person than they are. I'm good. What, What more do you expect of me? I'm a good person. Will we try to to rationalize our devotion down to this manageable, like friendly kind of love? Or do we go all in? Unconditional love for Jesus. This life is going to test your love and your commitment to Jesus. Sometimes it is flat out not easy to follow him. And when we claim our love for Jesus, Satan, he's going to try to do everything in his power to bring you back to your old life. Someone once said, the test of a man's devotion will surely come one day. He loves God most who is at his post when others run away. Friends, the promise that we have is that if we remain with Jesus through it all and we leave behind our old life, we will spend eternity with him in heaven. And as the things of this world fade away, his love will remain forever. Today, as we celebrate the resurrection, do you know the Savior that has died for you? That paid the price for you? Have you committed your life to Him? Giving up everything? Submitting to Him? Making Him the King of your heart? Or is today the day that you make the greatest decision of your life? 
Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful to be in your presence this morning. And we're so thankful for your love. It is a love that we cannot comprehend. It is a love way beyond our understanding. Because Father, even before we came to you, even while we were still in our sin, you loved us all so much that you sent your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to this world with the mission of paying the price for all of our sins. The spotless, sinless Lamb went through the punishment that we deserved, took on the full wrath for the punishment of our sins out of immense love for each one of us. And Father, this morning we we are so thankful for that. We have all fallen short. We have all betrayed you. And yet, you love us that much, all the same. But Father, we also thank you that that wasn't the end of the story. That the cross wasn't the end. That on the third day, our Savior Jesus came back. Resurrected, back to life. Living forevermore. So that our faith is not dead. We do not save, serve a a fallen Savior. No. We follow, we serve a risen Savior. A living hope that still lives today. A Savior that proved there is nothing in this world that could ever keep Him down. Not even death. And so this morning, as we sit here, I don't know what we've come in with this morning, what baggage we might have, what what sin we might be struggling with, what, what struggles we might be dealing with right now, but I do know that Jesus said, take heart, my friends, for I have overcome the world. And then He proved it. Father, I pray that we would take heart in that. And yes, there is never a promise that as a follower of Christ that we won't have trouble. In fact, there's a promise that we will have trouble. But the thing that sets Christianity apart from this world and from all the other religions is that that our King, that our Savior is still living. And he's still working. That he is still living and active in our lives and in this world. And there is nothing that could ever take that away. That it's nothing that could ever separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Father, as we continue on our path, whatever it might look like, even in the hardest, even our lowest of low moments, I pray that we would never forget that the price for our sin has been paid and we have the eternal hope through Jesus Christ that one day we get to be in a place where there is no more pain and there are no more tears, there is no more disease, there is no more cancer, there is no more evil to attack us anymore 
because of King Jesus. Father, I pray that all these truths that we hear, that we would open our hearts, that we would turn to you, and that we would walk out of here this morning different than we walked in with this life-giving truth from the love of Jesus, from the amazing grace that he has provided. Father, we thank you for that love. We thank you for that grace. Most of all, we thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've come here this morning and you don't have that relationship with Jesus, and he says that he's it, the world's going to tell us that there are, a lot, there are a lot of paths. You can make your own path. You can have your own truth. But I'm sorry, it's a lie. Because Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And the gate is narrow. But his arms are open wide. And if you've never placed your faith, if you've never placed your life in the hands of Jesus, it's hard going through this life without any hope. This, this world is hard for all of us. All of us go through a lot of things on a daily basis. We're, we're dealing with a lot of burdens. But the amazing thing about Christianity, the amazing thing about following a risen Savior is that He's still there. And though we may go through trials of many kinds, at the end of the day, Jesus has claimed victory. Jesus is over everything. And we have a hope in that. That there is nothing in the, that this world could ever throw at us. They could ever take that away. They could ever bring us down. They could ever take away our eternity in heaven with him. And so if you don't have that relationship, man, I hope you make the greatest decision of your life today to come forward and say, I've been struggling. I'm exhausted. I'm trying to do this on my own. I submit to him. I want to make him the king of my life. I don't want to come forward or repent and be baptized this morning. I might have come in here old and stuck in my sin, but I'm walking out of here a new creation in Jesus Christ this morning. That is the promise available to all of us. So I'd love to talk to you about that decision. I'll be right down front here. The water's warm. The towels are clean. We're ready for people to make decisions for Jesus Christ this morning. What better day than today? And not just because it's Resurrection Sunday, but because it's today and it can be the start of the rest of your life. <laughs> if you've already made the decision to repent and be baptized, then maybe you're here this morning. You just want to place roots at Gateway and be a part of what we're doing in this community and be a part of this family. This life is hard sometimes. And we deal with family stuff and marriage and all that. But one of the big things is the church, of the church is we can support one another on this walk and gather around each other, and love on each other, and serve together. <laughs> so if you want to be a part of what we're doing here at Gateway, we'd love for you to come place your membership here. I'll talk to you about that. Maybe you're here this morning, you just need some prayer. You just need somebody to come at you. And I've been saying a couple times, or come with you, I, I've been saying a couple times that this life is hard. But the amazing thing is that God has given us the gift of prayer. He knew it would be hard, but he also knew that the best thing he could give us is prayer. And we really believe in the power of that here at Gateway. And so I'd love to pray with you and bring God into whatever situation you're going through right now or the light or the something going on in the life of somebody that you love, somebody you're close with. I'd love to pray with you this morning. 
Maybe you just want to pray with somebody that's next to you. Maybe you know somebody's struggling, somebody from your group. You just see them struggling, you want to pray with them. That's okay too. During this response time, whatever that might look like, we believe in the power of prayer. You know, one thing, if you're a visitor, one thing we've been doing so far over the last few weeks for this year and hopefully for years to come is our Pray for One campaign. And so on our walls here, we've got the names of people that we're praying for, the people that need to hear about Jesus for the first time, the people that need to come back to Jesus, that need him in their lives. And we've taken and we made a commitment, a spiritual responsibility to pray for this person every day because it's so important. The most important thing that could happen is that somebody would come back to Christ or somebody would come to him for the first time. And so we've decided that we're going to try to change our community through the power of prayer, prayer one person at a time. We're done with the politics. We're done with all these other things. We're going to start praying for people and see if we can change the community and change the world. And it all starts with one. Because if just one person that we love comes to Christ, man, what a celebration that is. So maybe you want to come this morning. You have a name you want to write on the wall. You can do that during our response song. I'll be up front here. If you have a decision to make, you just need some prayer, I'll be right up front. If you have somebody near you that you want to pray with, pray with them. But I just ask that we all stand and sing our final song together.